perhaps you've considered the question, perhaps you are coming along to church maybe for the first few times of your life, maybe you're considering what Christianity is about, maybe you've been a Christian for a number of years and you're thinking about how to use Christmas time as a way to present to others uh, the faith that you hold. And the question then is, what do we make of this baby Jesus? What do we make of the baby Jesus? Who is he? What did he come to do? Why is Christmas all about him? And perhaps you go along to a nativity play at school and the image that's presented of him there is basically one of a, a cute story. A nice little curiosity. Oh, look, there's this poor Mary and Joseph have to travel all the way to Bethlehem riding on the back of a donkey and there's this baby born. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps it's just presented as a, as a myth or a, a, a nice story for the children. But then you'll go to other things, like you'll come to the carol service perhaps next week, and you'll hear the church here declare this Jesus, the baby, is the saviour of the world. Sort of two opposite ends of the spectrum. And you get that when you talk to people. If you went down to town uh, this week or next week, you might be able to speak to people and ask them, what do you make of Jesus? Who do you think he is? And some would say, I'm not even certain he existed. Others would probably say something along the lines of, well, he was probably a good example to us, a good teacher, something like that. And then hopefully you'd meet one or two Christians who again would say, he's my saviour, he's my lord and my king. And the question is, what do we make of this child Jesus? And Matthew wants to lead us into a proper understanding of who Jesus is by giving us a good, solid introduction. And these words that we've read this morning are the introduction to Matthew's Gospel, which make them the introduction to the New Testament as part of the Bible, which make them our very first introduction to Jesus Christ. And where does Matthew start? He starts with a man called Abraham. Because he opens, interestingly, not with with details about Jesus, but details about Jesus' family tree, his genealogy. And he starts right back at this man called Abraham, perhaps one of the most significant people in Jewish history. He was what you might call the founder, or the foundation at least, of the Israelites. He was the very first man that God called. And what's significant about Abraham is not so much what he did, but about the promises that he received from God. You see, God gave Abraham four, uh, well, one promise with four parts to it. The first part was, Abraham, your descendants are going to be a great nation. That's the Israelites. That's what the Israelites end up being. They're going to be a great nation. The second part of the promise was that there's going to be a specific land that I'm going to give you, Abraham. You and your descendants. A place for you to call home. If you've ever heard the phrase, uh, the promised land, that's what it's referring to. The promised land that God promised to Abraham. The third aspect of that promise was that God was going to bless Abraham and his descendants. I'm going to bless you, protect you, provide for you. Your enemies, I'm going to curse them. I'm going to help you, Abraham. Now at that point you might think, isn't that a little unfair? Why does Abraham get this preferential treatment from God? But then we see the fourth part of the promise. Because the fourth part of the promise was, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham. 
You see, the blessing to Abraham and his descendants wasn't just for their own sake. It was eventually for the sake of the whole world. So it's a bit like if you've ever been on an aeroplane, and when they're doing the safety introduction at the beginning, you'll, you'll notice they say, look, in, in the event of a sudden loss of pressure in the cabin, you'll get a gas mask dropped down from your head. And what do they always tell you at that point? They say, if you've got any children with you, don't put their mask on, put your own mask on first. You need the gas mask first in order to then be able to help any children you've got with you. And God's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you because through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. Abraham receives that first gas mask of God's blessing, as it were. He is blessed for the sake of others. So as Matthew writes this introduction to Jesus' life, he starts his family tree with Abraham. And so those first Jews, the the, the first Jewish audience that Matthew was writing to, would have been reading this with an expectation. Ah, here's Abraham. And because of Abraham, we're expecting someone who would bring blessing to the whole world. But who else is in the family tree? Well, if you look at verse 17, the, the significant people, well, there's 46 names here, but Matthew's drawing our attention significantly to Abraham and then to David. Abraham then to David. And verse 6, we see that this David is actually King David. One of the very first and perhaps one of the very greatest of all the kings of Israel. King David was gentle as a king. He was fair as a king. He wasn't greedy for for power or for money. He was uh, kind and generous. As a king, he had military success. He brought peace to Israel. And most importantly, he loved God. He he acted in ways that were right, in ways that were aligned with God's instruction for how Israel should live. King David was a great king. But what made David significant is, again, the promise that God made to David. And that kind of came in two parts. The first part was a reiteration of the promises made to Abraham. So they're given again to David. But the second part was, David, your son is also going to have a kingdom. He's going to rule after you. And you might think, well, that's not unusual. That's how, that's how monarchies work, isn't it? You know, We've got Queen Elizabeth on the throne at the minute, and Prince Charles will succeed her, her son. Uh, uh, kingships go down the family line. Nothing unusual there. But interestingly, that promise said, your son, well, his kingdom will last forever. His kingdom will last forever. Now, we often sing, don't we, that if you've ever sung the national anthem, we sing for uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign to, to reign for a long time. And so you might think, oh, well, this promise of God to, to David, is it just like uh, one of those prayers that just it'll go on for a long time? But recognize that this is not a prayer of one of David's friends. This is a promise of God. He's saying, David, your son will reign forever. And what happened? Well, David had a son, Solomon, and he was a good king. And things went well for for the start. But towards the end of his reign, things didn't go so well. And eventually, Solomon died. It wasn't Solomon, David's immediate son, 
who was the heir of that promise. And so when Matthew introduces David into this genealogy, those Jewish readers, those first Jewish readers, are expecting, ah, we're waiting for a son of David whose kingdom will last forever. Who else is in the family tree? Well, the next significant point is not a person, but an event. Verse 17, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile. The third marker point in this family tree is the exile. What is exile? Well, exile means to be shut out of your own country, to be sent away from your homeland. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. Fourteen generations after David, Israel were taken away from their homeland. Babylon, another country, another nation, swept in, attacked Israel, uh, attacked uh, Judah, and took the Jews off to live in Babylon. Uh, The Jews were now in exile. What happened then to those promises of God? What happened to those promises that God had given to Abraham? that he would bless and protect? What happened to those promises that God had given to curse the the enemies of Israel? Was God not powerful enough to keep his promise? Had God kept his promise for a certain time and then done away with it? I will ignore that promise now. Has God ignoring the promise? Has God deliberately broken his promise? Well, if you read the story, you'll find that it's not God who breaks his promise but it's Israel who's broken their promise. You see, there was a relationship between God and Israel. And God had said, you will receive these blessings if you are obedient to me, if you keep my commands, if you worship me alone, if you teach these commands to your children. And you know, Israel had wholeheartedly agreed to that relationship. Yes, they said, Yes, let's commit ourselves to that. And yet over time, they'd turned away. They had worshipped idols instead of God. They had cheated the poor and hurt the most vulnerable in their societies. They trusted their politics more than their God. And this general breaking of God's law in, in, in all those different areas is what the Bible calls... Sin. Sin is a problem that's almost as old as humanity itself. And it's a problem that's rooted itself so deeply in humanity that it's become part of our very nature. So much so that you could even perhaps talk about an inevitability of the sin of Israel and therefore their exile. But you know, the significant thing about the exile is that with that, there were also promises made. Just before Israel were taken off into exile, God sent prophets to give promises. And the promise was, Israel, I'm going to deal with the problem of sin. I'm going to deal with the problem of sin. There's going to be a time when my Messiah, my promised one, my anointed one will come. And he will deal with this problem of sin. He will give my people new hearts, a new desire to love and obey and follow God. God promised to send his Messiah. 
And so for those first Jewish readers, they're reading this with an expectation, when they hear of the exile, of God's Messiah, who would come and deal with a problem of sin. Well, here, says Matthew, is the Christ. Here is the Christ, which when translated means promised one, anointed one, or Messiah. And so against this backdrop of all the expectations that the Jews might have for their Messiah, Matthew presents the birth of Jesus. And the very first thing that Matthew wants to hit you with is that this birth of Jesus is is no accident. You see, from from even the, the pattern and the structure that you see in the genealogy, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations... You see, this isn't, this isn't a, a reaction to something that's gone wrong. This has been part of the plan, even from the very beginning. And you see that in the way that the, this, this child, Jesus, is not just an opportunist, a normal man who's grown up and seen, oh, I could make a, quite a difference here. No, actually, he's sent. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's come for a purpose. What is his purpose? Well, we see it in his name, for example. Look at his name in verse 21. The angel speaking to Joseph in a dream and he says to him, She, that is Mary, will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Do you know that name Jesus, if you've got a footnote, it probably tells you at the bottom of your Bible. If you've not, then I'm going to tell you what it means. It means the Lord saves. Jesus means the Lord saves. And so you can imagine Mary and Joseph, they, they, Mary's pregnant, they get on the donkey, they go off to Bethlehem, they find no room in the inn, they're put in the stable, the baby's born, they lay him in the manger and they say, what are they going to call him? And Joseph says, we'll call him the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Saves from what? What does he save us from? Again, those, those first readers of this gospel, the, the first Jewish audience, they might have had expectations of this saviour to save them from exile. Perhaps they would save them from Roman rule. But the angel doesn't leave it to conjecture. The angel tells Joseph exactly what Jesus will save them from. Verse 21, uh, you have to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. After all, For the Jews, it was their sin that had been the cause of their exile and all that they had lost. This baby Jesus had been sent to achieve a purpose. Not to put a sticking plaster on a symptom, but to pull out the root of the problem. He's come to deal with sin itself. Now, you don't have to be a first century Jew to see the importance of that role that Jesus has come to play. Because that problem of sin that the Jews had suffered from, that had driven them into exile, that had caused their relationship with God to be split apart, that had had driven that wedge between them and the God who was able to protect and provide and bless them, that same problem of sin is the same problem of sin that grips the hearts of men and women across the entire globe, even today. And Jesus has come to deal with with that problem of sin. And you'll see it in your lives this Christmas time. You'll see pride is the sin that causes ourselves to view ourselves as superior 
or more deserving in some ways than those around us. Selfishness is the sin that causes us to speak harsh words to those that we claim to love most dearly. Bitterness is the sin that will dredge up those past family feuds at the Christmas dinner table. Greed is the sin that will cause us to be sucked into the materialism that we claim to despise so much about Christmas. In short, sin is the cause of all that is wrong with this world. Sin is the cause of all the hurt and all the harm and all the disunity that we see around us. But most of all, sin is the cause of our spiritual exile. Sin is the thing that drives that separating wedge between you and the God who is able to protect you and bless you and keep you. And you'll feel that sin in different ways. You'll feel that separation perhaps in different ways. For some it'll feel like a lack of peace. No certainty or assurance. No steadfast rock on which to lean on. For some it'll feel like a lack of satisfaction. You can get all that, your, all that your heart might ever want this Christmas time. All the best gifts, all that money could buy. And yet you'll still feel unsatisfied with all that there is. For some it'll feel like uncertainty. A fear of what happens when this life is done with. What happens then? Where do we go? Where do I stand? That's what it feels like to be separated from the God who made us. And to those who recognise their problem of sin, Matthew would introduce you to Jesus. Matthew would say, here is Jesus, the one who has come to be the saviour from sin, the one who will save his people from their sins. How do you receive that salvation? I heard it described this week as Jesus being the Santa Christ. Jesus is the Santa Christ. Do you understand what they're saying? How does Santa operate? Santa, Father Christmas, uh, well, he turns up once a year, doesn't he? And, he? and he gives good gifts to those who are on his nice list, those who've been well behaved. And then he disappears for another 10 months of the year, and we live as we want until next November when suddenly we have to start behaving ourselves in order to make it back onto his nice list. And if we're not careful, we can develop a view of who Jesus is along these same lines. Jesus turned up. It gives us a good gift. Let's even call it the best gift. Salvation from sin. And then he sort of disappears off into the distance. We live as we wish until the time comes at the end for us to cash in our gift. Waving our ticket to heaven or whatever else it might be. We can all too easily form, form a view of Jesus that makes him into this Santa Christ. He gives us a good gift and then disappears off into the distance. But for Matthew, that's definitely not who he wants to introduce us to. Matthew is introducing us to Christ the King. Now we saw that, didn't we, in, in the, the family tree. The way Matthew writes the family tree and focuses on, on one of the persons of David and reminding his readers that David has been promised a son who will have an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And we see it in his name, the way his his name is given. 
The angel says his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That little pronoun there, he will save his people, indicates that Jesus has authority, a rulership over those that he's come to save. You would see it in the next chapter if we went on to read the story of the wise men coming to visit the baby Jesus. Who do they come to look for? The king of the Jews. You see it uh, if you read through Matthew and you'll find the teaching of Jesus. So often Jesus is teaching parables that are about the kingdom of God. To be saved is to become part of that kingdom. The kingdom where Jesus is king. Matthew records for us the death of Jesus on the cross. And what, when Jesus is crucified, what is the sign that's hung above him? It says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus gathering his disciples together and telling them, now all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is presented as the victorious king. Matthew's emphasis in introducing us to Jesus is to say, yes, that Jesus is saviour who will save us from sin, but also he is king. If you're going to have him as your saviour, you need to also be ready to submit to him as your Lord, as your king. Not as a tyrant king, but a a gentle, fair, loving king. Not as a a domineering king who's ready to uh, rule you with with, uh, undue power and, and, and affliction, but as a servant king who's ready even to lay down his own life for his people. Not a king who's bent on war and affliction and military power, but a king who has come to bring peace. Again, you don't have to be a first century Jew to see how that sort of king is a benefit to our lives. And the final question we want to address is, well, who is it that Jesus came to serve? Who is eligible for this offer? Who is invited into Jesus' kingdom? I've made mention this morning that Matthew was writing to Jews in the first century. But it was certainly Matthew's expectation that the message wouldn't stop with the Jews. Matthew's expectation was that this message would go out to the whole world. You see that how he started his family tree, remember, with Abraham. And that important promise to Abraham that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. This message of Jesus, the Saviour King, is not just for the Jews, it's for the whole world. And Matthew paints that in his Gospel. Again, we could go through the Gospel and see how those wise men who came to visit Jesus, where were they from? Well, they weren't Jews. They were non-Jews. They were from another country. We don't even know where they were from. They're from that far away. They just come from the East. People from the whole world are invited to come to this King Jesus. As you read through Matthew's Gospel, who is it that is most highly commended for his faith? It's not a Jew, but it's a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus when his child is ill, dying. When Jesus is crucified on the cross, Matthew paints a picture for us that shows that the Jews being the one who condemned him to death. Even Jesus' own disciples are the ones who flee in fear. And yet at his crucifixion, who's the one who recognises who Jesus is? It's a Roman centurion. Not a Jew, but a Roman. 
This message is for the whole world. And how does Matthew close his gospel? He finishes with Jesus gathering his disciples together. We've already thought, Jesus says then, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he sends his disciples out. Go into all the world. Go and make disciples of all nations. This message is not just for first century Jews. It's for the whole world. It's for you and me here in 21st century England. It's for the Chinese. It's for the Koreans. It's for the Filipinos. It's for, it's for any nation on the planet. Jesus has come to be the Savior and the King. To bring blessing to the whole world. And so the question I want to leave you with this morning is, have you had your sins forgiven by this Saviour King? Have you come to him? Have you accepted him as your King and Lord? Have you had the problem of your sins dealt with? And if you have, if you're a Christian, living under the kingship of Christ, are you looking to share this news with the whole world? Are you looking to introduce others to Jesus this Christmas time? Are you looking to bring others to this good news of forgiveness from sin?